Please be seated. You'll find the uh, notes for this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text on the back of the notes. I'll invite you to open your Bibles, if you have one, to the 119th Psalm. Psalm 119. And I'll remind you that we are, over the course of this last year, studying the book of James in Psalm 119. Doing a chunk of James, a couple weeks of James, and a week or two of Psalm 119, and trying to go through them both at the same time. Psalm 119 being the single longest chapter in the Bible, which is part of the reason why I've chosen this strange format, because I couldn't imagine going through 176 verses in one or two Sundays. There's just no way. And yet I imagined if we did 22, 23 weeks in a row, um, that would also be challenging as well. So by chipping away at it, a strophe at a time, when we come to the end of a section in James, I thought it might be a good way to progress. Now this will be our last Sunday in Psalm 119 for a few weeks. As we finish out a sort of subsection, I'd like to begin actually by reading the entirety of that subsection going all the way back to uh, starting in verse 65 through 88. And the subsection is one of affliction, suffering, pain, trial, anguish. Uh, These are not the themes that come across when I turn on the Christian radio station that often. You You don't hear songs like this very often. And yet, a third to two thirds of the Psalms contain lament. And, and this, this strophe for this week is the low point of Psalm 119. It's also the halfway point. When we get done verse 88, we'll be halfway through the psalm. But let's read the last three strophes um, and then have a word of prayer. <clears throat> you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Teach the insolent, smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live for your laws, my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. My soul longs for your salvation, I hope, in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me 
For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. Yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth. But I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life. That I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Lord God, as we look at this deep, dark section of this psalm, I pray that you would strengthen and encourage us. That we might learn how to suffer well how to suffer faithfully, that we might be reminded that we are not alone. You have gone before us. You hem us in. You've given us a song to sing even when we come to our end. In Jesus' name, amen. I titled this strove Praying at the Breaking Point because there's a Hebrew term that shows up in these verses three times. It kind of gives a center to the theme, and yet it's not translated very easily, at least our ESV didn't, into English. The Hebrew term is, is kala, and it means to come to an end, to stop or be finished, and then, by consequence, to vanish away or perish. So literally, in verse 81, my soul has come to an end, longing for your salvation. In verse 82, my eyes are at an end. Um, looking for your promise, which pairs up with verse 87, they have almost made an end of me on the earth. So my old Hebrew professor, Bill Barak, in his commentary on this psalm writes, um, when I say I am finished to mean that we, when we say, I am finished, to mean that we are done in or destroyed or dying, it's similar in meaning. And since this word characterizes the stanza's tone, we can sense the psalmist's dire circumstances. Now, this is the third strophe, the third section of eight verses, that deals with these insolent accusers, slanderers of, of the author. And we know that the, the threat they posed him is one... Um, both just of the pain of being slandered and real possible real-world consequences. Again, if you think of someone like Daniel, if, if your slanderers have the ear of the king, you might be put to death. You might be thrown in a lion's den. And so when he says, they have almost made an end of me on the earth, I think he's speaking about real threat to his life. Um, now, the tone of this stanza, dealing with the affliction, dealing with the enemies, changes. We saw in the first strophe that we looked at two weeks ago, Teth, 65 to 72, as he considers his affliction, the first thing he confesses is the goodness of God in his affliction. God is good and he does good. And it was good for me that I was afflicted, verse 71. We saw that God uses affliction and suffering in the lives of his children to correct their wandering and to instruct them. And that was good, even if it's not pleasant. And I remember two weeks ago saying, but that's not the only word on affliction. It's the first word here. It's an important word. Next, we saw last week the goodness of God in affliction and how God might use 
our affliction for the encouragement of others. As he considers God's faithfulness in afflicting him in verse 74, those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. And he's realizing one of the things God can do, another good thing about a season of trial and affliction is that as you trust God and as God shows himself to be trustworthy, others can look on and see and be encouraged and rejoice. He thinks of others again. In verse 79, let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. But what he needs in his suffering, the center of that last strophe, verse 76 and 77, in parallel, let your steadfast love comfort me, let your mercy come to me. He wants God's covenant promises and love. He wants God's mercy. He wants strengthening. Well, in this stanza, he cries out in anguish that it hasn't yet come. Verse 82, my eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? He he asked for comfort according to God's covenant loyal promises in verse 76. Now he's asking, where where is it? Let Let me read to you what one writer says about this section. Um, exhausted, spent, done, languishing, brittle, and about to shatter. Sometimes this is what life feels like. The observant reader notices that the moods change between the stanzas. There is no emotional symmetry here. There is a pretty good possibility that the psalmist composed these stanzas over time and not all at once. This would account for the varying moods. Another Commentator Alec Matier says this. These verses alternate between telling Yahweh how things are and seeking his action. These are two sides of prayer. Telling him what he knows already and asking him to intervene. Throughout the psalmist's attitude of waiting and how best to fill those hours. And even more simply put, Soul writes, The hopeful stance of the previous strophe is simply dropped. We plunge into an abyss of fear and isolation. Three questions dominate this strophe. When will you comfort me? Verse 84. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? He doesn't have an answer immediately. Now, this isn't the end of the psalm, but again, it's important. I think we pause here. Um, It may seem like a a depressing theme for our text, but some of the encouragement I would point you to as we look at this is that God knows his children will go through seasons where they feel like they don't understand what he is doing, where they've been faithful, where they haven't strayed, they've kept his commandments, and they're wondering, where is God? When will he keep his promises? When will he keep his word? If you find yourself there, you're not off the script. You're not off in a corner God didn't anticipate. God has a song for your lips even in that dark place. Others have gone there before you. And it's also not the end of the psalm. There are are other verses to be sung filled with hope. But for now, this is a place a godly person can be in asking these questions. A spirit-filled person not sinning can ask these questions of God. Done in the right way, with the right attitude. It's not insolent. It's not insubordinate. It's wholly appropriate. Take comfort in that. Um, Yes, we need songs of celebration, songs of hope, songs of joy. 
But from my understanding of listening to the radio stations, the, the church is in deep lack of songs of lament and mourning, which we can use to righteously and appropriately express our anguish and our grief. God's given his people a full-orbed songbook in his word. So we're going to look at this in two points. Um, and I'm just titled them by how I structured this. In the first four verses, 81 to 84, it's just the psalmist and the Lord in view. He's just talking to the Lord. And then in 85 to 88, it's the psalmist, his enemies, and his God. He's now considering them directly. Throughout the whole psalm, this strong emotional grief reigns in. The questions crescendo the first point. And I just want to move through this. The psalmist and his God, point A. In verses 81 and 82, you see his total exhaustion. His total exhaustion. My soul longs for your salvation, I hope, in your word. And I put in the blank here, his soul is at its end. Longs is a fine translation. It's just not an English figure of speech. I'm at the end. We might use it in certain places. I had you put the blank here just so you can see the verbal parallelism. So he feels like he's come to the end. That's why I put it at the breaking point. He's not sure how much further he can go on. My soul is at its end waiting for God's salvation. You've ever felt, I don't know, I'm going to make another day. Godly people have been there before you and gone ahead. God has given you verses to pray and sing to him. You're not alone. His soul is at his end waiting for God's salvation. This, of course, is what he asked for just in the previous stanza. Verse 77, let your mercy come to me that I may live. Verse 76, let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise. Well, he's been waiting. Don't know how long, but he's questioning whether he can wait any longer. His soul is at its end. And yet, by contrast, he continues to hope in God's word. Now, we can be tempted when we look to the Lord for salvation and tarries to look to other things, right? You remember Saul was told to wait for Samuel to return on the seventh day and offer a sacrifice. And as Samuel tarries and the people start to disperse, he's concerned he won't have a large enough army to fight the Philistines, so he disobeys and he offers the sacrifice. Why? Because God was delaying. Samuel was going to come back the last second of the seventh day. And we can be tempted likewise when God doesn't show up on our timetable to turn, okay, well, then who else can help me? The psalmist isn't doing that here. Even as he feels like he's come to the end of waiting for God's deliverance, he's not hoping in anything other than God's word and God's promises. That's the contrast in this stanza, is, God, I don't know why you're delaying, I don't know what you're doing, but he's been faithful. He's been faithful. Yet he continues to hope in God's word. In parallel to his soul, we then get, my eyes are at an end, waiting for God's promise. I think he's speaking about the whole person, my soul, my eyes, waiting for your salvation, waiting for your promise. I think it's all the same thing. He wants God to show up, give him strength. He wants God to show up, deal with his enemies. He wants God to show up and get him out of this trial. And he is weary. He's tired. And he feels like he may be at the very end of himself. 
that that is a valid place to be. I don't think God intends us to live there all that long. But God does intend for his children at times and places to be there. And he's gone ahead. He's given us a song to sing. He's given us prayers to pray. And we can find comfort in that. His eyes are at an end waiting on God's promise. This is similar to uh, what Jeremiah writes in Lamentations 2.11, same figure of speech. Here the ESV translates it, my eyes are spent with weeping. Literally, my eyes are at an end with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out in the ground. The Bible can use really picturesque, strong, vivid words to describe grief. His eyes are at an end, waiting for God's promise. Which then brings up the first of the three anguished questions. When will you comfort me? Remember we saw last week, what he was looking for first and foremost wasn't get me out of this, but comfort me and strengthen me in this. Verse 76, let your steadfast love comfort me. Verse 77, let your mercy come to me. And yet, apparently, they have not arrived yet. He has not experienced them yet. And he doesn't know why. And again, the, the, the attitude this is done in, it makes all the difference in the world. We can ask questions of God. We can ask questions in ways that make it clear. You better answer me. You better give an account of yourself. You've, if you have children, you, you've, you've heard that tone. Well, why don't I get to if he... And there's some insubordination in that. Who are you that I have to answer to you? But a child can also come up to their father and say, Father, why? Why didn't you let me do what my brother did? It's all about the right attitude. But you can ask these questions with the right attitude, from the right heart. It's okay. (laughs) When will you comfort me? And he moves on. Now to a further vivid description of his battered condition. His battered condition. He uses an image here. I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. So he had his soul at an end, his eyes at an end. Now he likens himself to a wineskin hanging in the smoke. This is a simile that doesn't have any parallel in Scripture. I tried looking up wineskin smoke. As best as we can take what he means, and I'll lean on Barak's understanding here, presumably blackened, dried out by the heat, ready to crack, no longer usable, well illustrative of having come to the end. So your blanks here, he's picturing himself that he's become shriveled and charred by this trial. You got a leather wineskin hanging over a fire in the smoke, charred, dried, shriveled, cracked. That's what he's likening himself to. He's, he's withering away. He's not sure how much further on he can go. His eyes are at an end. His soul is at an end. He himself shriveled and charred. And yet, in contrast, he has been faithful to keep God's word. And this is the irony. He's, he's calling on God to keep his word, and in this situation, the psalmist has been faithful to keep God's word. He's, not, he's questioning God, when will you be faithful to keep your word? I don't think he doubts that the Lord will. 
It's all about the when. He knows God will keep his word, but he, he would like God to do that now. There's a sense of urgency here, which can be righteous and good done properly. Yet he has been faithful to keep God's word. Then we see his perplexed exasperation in verse 84. Now, interestingly, you may have noticed this, or you may even already know this. Virtually every verse of Psalm 119 has some word referencing God's word. Virtually every verse. This is one of possibly five times in the psalm, and it's the first, where there is no clear reference to God's word in the verse. Verse 84. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? And so, what do we make of that? Well, the the tight symmetry and pattern and rhythm of the psalm falters here. Which I think highlights... How shaken up the psalmist is. Again, Barak writes, this verse is the first not to include a mention of God's word. Such an omission highlights the psalmist's circumstances. It perhaps is meant to be jarring in our ears. Wait, what? To highlight how shaken up he is. How troubled and vexed he is. The pattern falters. And he asks these two questions. Now here, his exasperation is over two things. And I I think the ESV misses the meaning of the first question. How long must your servant endure? The Hebrew literally is how many are the days of your servant? And I think what he's getting at, what other translations, the New American Standard and others take this to mean instead, is how much life is left there for me. I don't have many more days. My, My clock is ticking, God. How many more days do I have? He's looking at his own frailty. How many are the days of your servant? And the the thought being in contrast to the next question is, Lord, if you're going to let me see in this life your justice, you're going to have to act soon. They've almost made an end of me on the earth. My days are few and numbered. Act, please. I think that's the idea here. He's perplexed, exasperation over his own frailty and in longing for justice. In longing for justice. And we may cringe again because it doesn't seem very nice to read him say, when will you judge those who persecute me? And we know that there can be a vindictiveness that is wicked. There can be a desire for vengeance, which is unseemly and ungodly. But keep your finger here. Turn to Revelation chapter 6, book of Revelation, all the way at the end of the Bible, right before maps. Yeah, that was a joke. Revelation 6. Turn there with me. And I want to show you some sinless souls disembodied under the throne of God. I'm going to show you their prayer. Pick it up in verse 7. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, with pestilence, by wild beasts of the earth, 
When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. He's, he's looking at martyrs, people killed for their faith, for not backing down, for not compromising, speaking and testifying to the truth, even at the cost of their own death. And now they're in God's throne room. They're not sinning. What they're about to say is righteous and good. They cried out with a loud voice. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they're each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Desire for justice and, and some key things to note here. The desire for God to do justice. Most of our anger and desire for revenge is we want to do it. We want to say vengeance is mine. And we're, we need to repent. We're trying to take God's job from him. But a willingness to see God do justice is good and proper and fitting. So he cries out, Lord, my days are few. How many of the days of your servant? When are you going to judge those who oppress me? When will you judge those who persecute me? This is kind of a peak, the first peak of this section as he asks these questions. There's, there's no answer. He doesn't know. He's just pouring out his heart to God. He's vexed. He's asked for comfort. It hasn't come yet. He doesn't know how many more days he will be alive. And he desperately wants God to answer him, to keep his word, and in this world to judge his enemies. And so he cries out to his father. That, that's all good. These are things you can do righteously in your grief, done the right way, following this script. This brings us then to the second section. The psalmist his enemies, and his God. Now he begins to describe his enemies and what they're like. This is the chief torment, is what they're doing to him. And he's been faithful. They're accusing him of all sorts of wrongs when they themselves are the ones doing wrong. That's what makes it so difficult. First, we'll look at his desperate plight. His desperate plight. The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. And so he's picturing them as literally trying to trap him. He's wasting away. His eyes are wasting away. His soul's wasting away. And yet he's got traps around him at all sides from these insolent, haughty people. And of course, in contrast, they themselves do not live according to his law. I mean, that's the irony here, or the hypocrisy. They're falsely accusing him of wrongdoing when they themselves are the lawless ones. The blank there is enemies live lawlessly. And this, again, is all the more reason why it would be fitting for God to arise and judge them. The ones who accuse are the guilty ones. They're accusing an innocent man. His determined perseverance comes next. His determined perseverance. He's contrasting them with God's word and with himself. They don't live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They're true. They're dependable. Even in his dismay, he is 
absolutely confident in the truth of God's commands. He just doesn't know what God is doing and why. He's not faltering in his confidence in what God has said. He's not even questioning whether God will keep his word. It's all about the when and the why. When will you? Why haven't you? And again, you can ask why. Anybody who's interacted with a child knows. You can ask a why question in an insubordinate, rebellious, rude way. And you can ask a why question wholly appropriately to a loving father. So his desperate plight, his insolence seek to trap him, his enemies live lawlessly, then his determined perseverance. He is confident in the truth of God's commands, and he cries out to God for deliverance. I mean, notice how the way this interjection just jumps in, all your commandments are sure, they persecute me with falsehood. So God's word is true and sure, they persecute him with what is unsure and untrue, and then he just cries out, I think, help me! There's an urgency here. There's a there's a peak of emotion. He he is constrained and concerned, and he is in danger and he needs help. What's the consequence of this? They have almost made an end of him on the earth. It's working. It's working. Their plots, their plans seem to be working. almost made an end of him on the earth. And yet in contrast to all of their wickedness, I have not forsaken your precepts. Again, we see he has been faithful to keep God's word. That's again what makes this so painful. It's not that God's unfaithful. He just doesn't know how the Lord will answer his promise. He doesn't know how the Lord will answer his prayer. He knows these lawless, wicked men are falsely accusing him. He knows that their plots are working. He's in real danger. God hasn't answered. God's comfort hasn't come. And yet he's not turning to any other source for hope. He's hoping in God's word. And he's not sure if he can go on much further. Which brings us then finally to his dependent plea. His dependent plea. Verse 88. There's only really two requests in this psalm. There's some implied requests. He wants comfort. When your comfort comes. There's only two direct requests. In verse 86, help me. And in verse 88, in your steadfast love, give me life. That I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. What's he asking for? The request, give me life, is one of the dominant requests in Psalm 119. Look through a couple of these. Verse 25, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Look at verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Verse 40, behold, I long for your precepts and your righteousness. Give me life. You can track through the rest of these in the psalm. And I've suggested when we looked at this before, it means something like revive, strengthen me. Now here it may also literally just mean don't let me be put to death. I I think he probably means both. Revive and protect me in your covenant faithfulness. Again, chesed is God's royal, loyal love to his people of covenant. God, you've made promises concerning your people. Give me life according to those promises. He needs strength because he doesn't know if he can go on. 
and he needs physical protection. And notice why. He wants life and strength so that he can continue to keep the testimonies of God's mouth. He, he wants the strength, not to spend it on his own pleasures, but that he might be faithful. Now, we won't get to the next section of Psalm 119 for a few weeks, but I want you to see, even as dark and deep as this valley is, there isn't a lot of resolution here, is there? There's just anguish, confusion, questioning, suffering. Look at the very next strophe. Here's God has answered his questions. Answered his prayer. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You've established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand fast. For all things are your servants and your law. had not. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts. For by them you have given me life. I want you to see before we get there in a few weeks. There is resolution. There is a way out of this deep, dark valley. And we'll look at that in a few weeks. But also remember that before you get to the end of the valley, you're in the valley. And that's okay too. Don't don't despair that God's going to leave you there. Don't despair that you're someplace unintended. In fact, turn, turn a little bit in the left in the book of Psalms to Psalm 22. And this is a good segue into time of communion. One of the reasons why when I question where God is or what he's doing, when I don't understand why he's being slow to act by my standards, it helps me to remember the Lord of glory, the shepherd of the flock, too, had these questions. God wrote a song for his beloved son to sing when he hung on a tree bearing our sin. I take comfort in that. Hundreds of years before Jesus entered this world, God wrote a lyric, a verse for his lips when he was filled with anguish, when he was filled with vexation, and he cried out, Psalm 22, 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me and from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you are fathers trusted. They trusted you, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame, but I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me and make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. We can keep on reading. 
If you feel that you're in that valley, if you don't know what God is doing and why he isn't answering, take comfort. Another one more deserving, more righteous, and more loved than you has walked this same path as well. And we can see from our vantage point that God was faithful to him. We can see God's purpose in letting this happen. God's purpose was that you and I might be saved. If Jesus had never experienced this vexation, we would know no salvation. And so if God chooses to tarry longer than you would like, if he chooses to delay, he is faithful. Trust him. Sing the songs he's given you to sing. He's written a song for your low point. And wait and be faithful. Pray and hope and trust him. And know that there are other verses to the song. This is not where you will stay forever. Um, with that, let's have a word of prayer and we'll transition to our time of communion. I'll ask the men to come forward now. Lord God, as men come forward, I just pray that you would um, work in our hearts that we might so trust you, even when we don't understand, even when we don't have answers, that we too would not turn from your word that we would still suffer well, endure trials well. Well, that I pray for those here today who are in that dark place, that you would not let them stay there long, that you would bring them out to the other side where they could rejoice, but sustain them there faithfully, Lord. Train us, teach us to see your good hand, even in dark and difficult places. Lord, now as we turn our attention to celebrating the death, the burial, the resurrection of our Lord. Help us to do it with sincere hearts, considering what we are doing. In Jesus' name, amen.